Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here this morning with Christina Charles. And I met Christina in a very unusual setting. We had gotten calls at our office about a rally by Main Street Altamont USA, and we had never heard of it. So I drove down to the Leo O'Brien building, and there, in the midst of a snowstorm, was Christina with the rally she had organized, and it was kind of hard to talk because it was snowing and it was cold and my ballpoint pen wouldn't write. So we thought we'd bring Christina in to a nice warm place where we could actually talk. And here she is. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, I just want to find out as much as I can about you, both as a protest organizer, but also looking online, I discovered you're a poet, and I'm also very interested in that. So just let's start a little about you, where you're from, how you grew up, what your family was like, just so people get a sense of who you are. Um, okay, well, I, I'm actually originally from downstate New York City. I was born in Brooklyn, and I was raised in Queens, New York. I'm an only child. Um, my parents are Haitian immigrants. They came in the 1970s. My mother arrived when she was a teenager. My dad was like in his 20s when he came, and I pretty much grew up in Queens. I went to Catholic school my, my whole life. Um went to St. Bernard. It was a school in Manhattan. And then I went to St. Michael's Academy, which was an all-girls Catholic high school. Then I went to St. John's University. By the way, this isn't like really, when I went to Catholic high school and Catholic college, I wasn't, I went, when I went to college, I was like, wait a minute, I've, I'm still in Catholic. But it's not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not like an extra, extra Catholic. It just was like, oh, wow, okay. So now St. John's Catholic well, college. They're all <laughs> institutions with reputations for good education. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, so I went to St. John's and I was an English major and I got a BA MA degree, which was, I was able to work on my, master's while I was also simultaneously working on my bachelor's. So I did it in five years. So I graduated in 2005 with a bachelor's at St. John's and I got the MA in 2006 at St. John's. And so my passion was mostly for literature and writing. And I started doing, um, I published my first book, uh, Badass poetry. <laughs> yeah, I love the name. I yes, I meant that this badass. Well, tell me. Just I know we're we're gonna get to the protest stuff, but just tell me about that name. It's badass and bad is spelled with two a's, bad. so it's bad. It's, it's, it's really bad. It's super bad. No. <laughs> tell me, because that name. Where did just, that? Yeah. Where did I come from? Well, yeah. it actually came from. I was inspired by, um, I saw a documentary on cinema, like badass cinema, but it was actually referring to the black exploitation films in the 1970s. There was a lot of like Shaq and there was all these kind of movies that were coming out in the 70s. And it was a very unique time, obviously from the political June, you know, this was just after the civil rights movement, you also had groups like some Black Panthers and all this organization, and it kind of spilled into the creative sector. So you started seeing all of a sudden this, for a brief period, like these independent cinema makers, these filmmakers, and they were making these types of films that were like almost what I call like black superhero. Like this is what Shaft was, you know, yeah. like he was this sort of 
super guys, super, and then you had like all, you had female, like Pam Greer did a couple of those types of films. Um, Quentin Tarantino was a fan of those types of movies. He even, um, made a film like Jackie Brown and it was an inspiration. It was an ode to Pam Greer. She was an actress in one of those types of movies back in the seventies. So he kind of gave her Jackie Brown as kind of an ode to those types of films. So I was, very inspired by the culture, the kind of sense of um, affirmation and studying more about black history and protest movements in the United States. So when I came up with badass poetry, that was, and I spelled it the two A's in, in deliberate kind of reference to that. So that was my first jaunt in, into that. And I actually used to do, um, performances. I did one years ago in um, DC in a little DC club and I actually did some live. If I knew I would have had some stuff, I could have given you yeah, a little bit of an I tried essay. to call you in I time. Given, I would have given, I would have heard that. I would have given you a whole a flavor of it, but, <laughs> but I don't have anything off the, like, unfortunately I can't draw a blank of some of the old stuff on yeah. top of my head right yeah. now, but I used to actually, um, do um stuff like that I used to do poems and performance and that was my um first book so that's where badass comes from I was deliberately kind of um recalling um that era that era or whatever that that era and I was in it kind of that first poem was very much about talking about those kind of things talking about I guess you could say like the afrocentric afrocentricity in that sense in the modern context and you know, cultural things. And I had different poems like, you know, the drum or cry, my beloved Africa, uh, cry, my beloved Africa or woman. These were what I saw like, um, self-empowering type of stuff. And I was kind of, that specific book was very much in reference to that. So I see a lot of threads that lead directly to this protest (laughs) (laughs) from this because it seems like what you're saying with the kind of poetry you're writing was hearkening back to that earlier civil rights movement. And now we're in a different kind, and maybe you can tell me more about it because you're actually out there marching. Um, I was... Yeah, of course, I'm much older than you. So I was, you know, part of the Vietnam protest marching era. The I was in Boston with, you know, marching for keep the buses rolling for integration. But that seems to me it was a much more pointed kind of marching and protest with very specific things spill, spelled out that people were trying to get either integration or an end to the war. And these kinds of protests, like the one that you organized Tuesday, it seems like at least the people at that gathering were had a whole variety of things that were concerning to them. I mean, do you have any thoughts on the kind of badass <laughs> um, um, tradition that you were hearkening back to and what's happening now? Well, what's happening, obviously, it's a sort of interesting thing because I remember when I first started getting interested in this type of, like, it was mostly from an intellectual perspective, right? I wasn't seeing myself in, like, I wasn't actually participating. I mean, there, there have been people for a long time, I mean, who've been participating in more activism and obviously within the last, from 2000. 
13, you see a lot of, um, the black lives movement and all that's been going up, but I haven't been in, I haven't been in, it's not that I'm interested, but I've never been involved in that. But what you see now, I think, I feel as a result of all of the different movements that emerged from the 60s, 70s and 80s, and you see kind of the impact of it. So, I mean, what did you have in the 60s, 70s? You had the women's rights movement, you had the, um, obviously you had the black movements, but you also had environmental movements that were also starting to take place in the, the 60s, 70s as well. And this generation that's grown up has grown up with a sense of, okay, these things are significant. They're important. Like, you know, a lot of people, they feel very strongly about climate change. They feel like it's not a hoax. There's a lot of women who feel like me, who feel like women's rights are non-negotiable. I mean, these are rights that have been won, we're talking 30, 40 years ago. And obviously, yes, of course, the the ongoing struggles as a black person within the, the U.S. and that's perpetual. And what's happened with this, um, I think, the incoming Trump presidency is that all of these different issues are at stake because it's they're all being attacked simultaneously. And I think what you're seeing is kind of a true grassroots, but it's kind of a spontaneous. Well, as opposed to, I think with the other movements, people had a clear cognizance that these things weren't true. Like, you know, with women's, this has been a long building issue from, you know, you take that back until the 19th century and then moving on to the women's right to vote. And then you go on. That's These were long. So when people went out, they had very specific sense of this, a sense of injustice. But I think with the Trump thing, it kind of threw it into chaos because nobody really felt that there were tensions there, but I don't think people felt like they felt that most of the major battles had been won. We need to keep pushing to kind of move it forward, especially particularly with climate change, because that's always a, that's a major issue. But I think that most people feel like, okay, we, we have been making progress. We're just going to continue along. And what this administration and what their cabinet picks are showing is like, we're going to undo all of that. We're, you know, when you have somebody like, I think it's Tom Pruitt, who is a, not only a, who sued the EPA, who's going to now 14 different times. And it's how are you going to head an organization that you sued 14 different times um, going to head the environmental protection agency? That's a very dangerous thing. And so, and again, you have, um, was going to say you have the situation with the civil rights and you have the, the current attorney general and the, who's going to be picked. All of these picks seem to are undermining all of this different progress. So that's why you see all of these different gatherings of people here because everybody's, I would say that the feeling is there's a sense of fear. There's a sense of, in, in a, in a way that I don't think I've ever experienced, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm only 33, but I've never experienced that a fear over a presidency. And that's also what makes this very unique because all of the other protests that were gathering before, while there were, you know, animosity towards Nixon and there was animosity towards Johnson, they weren't specifically targeting a specific administration. They were targeting issues that they were fighting against. While with this is very different because this is why you have so many different people. People feel like this specific administration and this specific president is the threat to all of these different issues. And and that's where that fear, but that's why there's no sense of, okay, we're all organizing on one point because it's just all these different people who have issues. If you're a woman and you believe in Planned Parenthood and women's rights, all of a sudden you feel, wow, well, that's under threat. You know, all of these different people are coming together. And then there are just some people that just don't like the tone of what Trump is doing. 
and just feel like the whole situation, democracy is at stake. That's what I would feel like underlining all of these different issues. There's this tension of democracy being at stake. And of course, let's not even get into Betsy DeVos and that kind of, you know, <laughs> that, that, that nightmare. But, you know, it's like these people are actually being, that are being appointed to these positions are absolutely the opposite of what their position, they're, they're almost there to destroy these positions that they're there. I mean, so that's where it's more, I would say if I was going to put my finger on the pulse of what would be the number one thing, it would be trying to save this democracy, save the U.S. Because it feels like if these people are actually allowed to run amok and not be checked, um, then we what the U.S. will turn into only knows. And there's this feeling that our re- elected representatives are not doing enough. On the Republican side, they're not doing anything at all to check Trump. I mean, there's pretty much going along. Many of the policies that he is trying to put in are very much hard right policy. So, well, yeah, a usual check is the press. And as we all know, the press has been vilified by the Trump administration. So that usual check isn't there. But one thing that strikes me about what you're saying, and you're the perfect example of it, that's it, different about the protests now from earlier ones, is the leadership. Um, I covered a rally um that right after Trump was elected, um, that was held at the same time the KKK was holding a congratulatory celebration for him in the Carolinas. It was in Albany to kind of counter that. And some of the very old organizers were out there <laughs> from the earlier era, but there were new people that had never even been to a rally, let alone organized one. And it seems to me you're one of those. And it's it's a genuine grassroots feeling. What If you could just talk a little about personally what got you to... Another thing that you might comment on that feeds into it, I think, that lets it be that grassroots is, unlike in the 60s, we now have electronic communication, which has, I think, a lot to do with how people can organize um, without the old, you know, phone lists and things that um, kind of kept, kept the organizing all to one small group. The electronic aspect has definitely changed. Well, first of all, I mean, the Women's March was all started, I believe, by a post or a tweet that said, I think we should march. And that's what led to that kind of organizing. I wasn't part of any of these things. Um, I saw the Women's March in rallies. I wanted to be a part of it, but I wasn't sure. Um, so I was kind of sympathetic, but I felt kind of nervous about how I would feel actually being a part of it. But what brought me in was I signed petitions a lot, electronic petitions that move on or people's action send through. And then they sent out an email saying that, you know, they were trying to organize local meetings in the area. And one of these was being hosted by Doug Peterman in in the Altima area. And I believe that was around January 15th. So I said, well, you know, I could do that. I could go to a meeting and, you know, maybe, and I felt kind of excited. Maybe I can meet some people sharing sympathy. So I went to that meeting and I thought, okay, and it was nice. And we made an agreement that we're going to try to meet, you know, once a month or something to that effect. So we're supposed to meet next week, another meeting. I got off that. I think the 
week of the inauguration or sometime afterwards, actually, no, the week after, there was a phone call, a teleconference, and about 60,000 people were on that. And they were talking about, this is where they were introducing the concept of Drain the Swamp Tuesdays or people organizing things on a Tuesday. You know, anybody could do it. And at first I thought, okay, but I don't know too, too many people. Because I don't have, like, a, a lot of my long-term friends are in different areas. So, and some of them have moved. Some of them are in Boston. Some of them are in Pennsylvania. I have a couple friends in New York. Um, I haven't made too many close friends here, so except for the, and I met some people. So I emailed some of the Altima people. Some of them said they could go. So I went to the rally on January 24th. That was my first time. And I went there, and it was an interesting experience. There was tell, tell us about it. What, where was it, and who? Like, what was the group like? Um, okay, it was it was in front of the same. It was at Leo O'Brien, so it was the same location as the the one that I had on January thirty first. And the idea was to pick a federal building. That's why that was yeah. Because we the focus. Let me actually let me backtrack just a little bit. Um, what move on and. People's action or what they're focusing on. They were actually, there was a guide called the Indivisible Guide. This guide is online and it was written by two former congressional staffers. And it pretty much lays out very effective plans for resistance. And what they actually are loosely modeling it off was the Tea Party, but taking out the bad, you know, kind of negative aspects. But what the Tea Party, what they observed the Tea Party did very effectively was to. A, keep it locally focused. So to actually focus on your local, con- you know, congressional representatives and to be persistent, you know, actually make demands on with them and organize on that. And there's there's also, there's several other things as well as far as media and, you know, et cetera. So what these Tuesday events and what these subsequent rallies are about is focusing on your local representatives, putting the heat and pressure on them. So, and also keeping it very specific. So for example, don't talk about something that they're not going to be working on until six months from now, because it's not going to be their focus. Focus on what is at hand. So right now, what's the main issue? Cabinet picks, nominations. This is what they're focusing on. So the idea behind these and going, since this is something that specifically involves the Senate, to this is why we're going to the Leo O'Brien, because this is where the representatives, Christian Gillibrand and Senator Chuck Schumer, that's where their their offices are in the Albany area at the Leo. So that's why it's specifically there. And the message is pretty much to that specific Tuesday, the first that I went, January 24th, people came for a variety of issues. They were representing, you know, a lot of people came out for Betsy DeVos. They wanted to send a message to resist DeVos because a lot of people were former teachers. And they feel like her impact will be devastating to a lot of public schools. So many former teachers that were at that first rally were, were there. Some people were, somebody was actually concerned about the, you know, net neutrality. There was one person that was there concerned because they felt like, you know, they were concerned that the if it sells off to big companies, it could it, that could also, that's another problem. So, and then it was just a lot of people were just objecting in general. The message is sort of resist all. So when I came there, it was, I would say, a turnout of about 50 people. Joe Seaman, who's a longtime activist, he was the host. But he came in at the last minute because somebody else had volunteered. Because the way that Move On has it set up 
anybody could sort of, you can go on their page and they have the, like, they'll have the event laid out like, okay, January 24th, resist. And you can see if there's an event in your area or you can offer to host. So you can go on the website and you say, okay, I'm going to host. And you put the information there and then they lay out some tools about what you should do. And then they try to send out mass emails to everyone in the local area to come to this event. Somebody had apparently arranged to host, but then backed out, I guess, the last minute. Maybe they felt overwhelmed because, again, people, as you notice, people are not having experience. There's a lot of people who haven't done this before. So right, I'm just going to intercede here so the listeners know MoveOn.org is a liberal advocacy, not-for-profit organization that was formed in the Clinton administration when there was so much attention on the impeachment and they wanted to move on. So go ahead. Sorry. Yes. No, thank you for that. Yes. So, and um, People's Action and or Citizens Action of New York, their affiliate is also part of this, and Working Families Party, they're also a part. But Move On was the one that I was going uh, going through. So that Tuesday, Joe Seaman kind of stepped in the last minute, and people were coming. The idea we had kind of gathered together, and everybody was saying where they're from and why they were there. Um, and then the intention was that we were all going to. There was a few of us that were going to go speak on each specific cabinet pick and to say why we objected. That was the kind of idea. It didn't kind of turn out that way. <laughs> but uh, what happened was um, there was another um, co-host organizer there, and he. there were some representatives that came out for Schumer and Gillibrand, but I think they were sort of lower-level staffers, might have been interns, I don't really know. They wanted to meet with us, but they wanted to meet outside. And this co-host did not like that idea. He thought that it's disrespectful. There's people out. We can come in one at a time. We can all, if you, for security purposes, because this was like a number of about 50 people. If you want to check us, you can check us. But I think we should be able to go in and meet with our, you know, elected inside the building. We shouldn't have to be standing outside in the cold. We just went back and forth for pretty much most of the time. And um, there was a the police presence were on the main floor. There were quite a bit. Of, I think there was over 30 just came downstairs. They just were not. And it was a back and forth between the building manager. Um, GSA, I think, owns the building. They were saying that you needed a permit to come in, et cetera, et cetera. So the long and short of it, um, we did not speak on our particular issues. There were some people that left that I think they were frustrated because there were some communication issues going on, and I think there were some people that felt like, well, we could just say something to them. I mean, they're out here. And some people, whatever. So people left. But I, I stayed to the end, and it was about 1, 15, 16. I felt invigorated. Like when they asked me what they felt, I felt kind of a little bit excited, strangely enough. And yes, well, uh, you told me at the very cold outside the building yeah. rally that it was like a switch flipped and yeah. you were excited. And now what you've just described to me, I'm wondering why you were excited. Why, why yeah. would that have excited me? Well, because like I said, I had always been, you know, like I said, from an intellectual perspective, my I've always been very much about these sorts of things. But I think from an emotional perspective, the quiet, shy, like you said, like we were talking before a little bit offering, you were saying to me, like, you saw a picture of me on the cover of my book, Badass Poetry, and I looked kind of fierce. But yeah, when you so talked to me. you looked like a badass. Like a badass. <laughs> 
badass. <laughs> that, just so people know, if you haven't seen the book, she's got a Stetson and a rakish angle and kind of those smoky eyes <laughs> coming out underneath. And I'm looking at a woman who's got a full smile across her face and very engaging. So, And it's like I have, you know, I have two elements of me, but the other more day-to-day is much more of the shy girl, the only child, a little bit, you know, went to Catholic school. So I have that element. So I was concerned. I was like, how am I going to feel if there's people, if there's some resistance? And there was a little bit. Like when we first came out, when we first came there, um, there were some people that were not happy they were coming out of the building. And one lady was like, you know, I just want to pose in front of the flag. And I guess she felt there was an issue of patriotism. And so we did move because it was a de-escalation. We moved for her to, you know, do her thing. And some people, I heard them kind of arguing in the background. Somebody drove by and gave a finger or something like that, and some people. But most of the reception was positive. But what, what happened with me is I thought that would bother me. I thought I would be intimidated by hostile reaction, and it wasn't at all. I felt nothing. I felt nothing. It didn't bother me. I wasn't angry about it. And so when I walked away, I said, you know what? I can't do this. I'm not, you know, I mean, obviously... I am not facing grave danger, and I don't know how I feel like there are some people who are out there, protesters getting dragged by the police and getting arrested and all kinds of extreme things. I don't know how I would feel about that. I don't know if I'd be ready for that type of action as of yet. But going out there and speaking it and people, I can handle that. It was more reassuring to me. It was more of a sense of, for me, it wasn't the rally didn't go as planned as it was supposed to, but that didn't matter to me. What mattered to me is that I actually did something. I was, for the first time, I actually stood out in a rally in the cold and I wasn't intimidated by what other people, you know, some negative opinion. So I walked away and I felt excited. Most people didn't, but I did. And <laughs> and then when I reached out to the Altamont Mainstream Group, I talked about, you know, I think that was a, after some of... Trump's executive orders were coming through. That that was even before the Muslim ban. That came on the weekend. But there was some executive orders. And I put out an email to get some feedback. I reached out to Joe Seaman. And he did get back to me. And he was very, very helpful. But he didn't read back to me yet. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I went on the move on page. I saw the host things. I'm going to do it. (laughs) What a host. (laughs) And I signed up. And I I said, oh, boy, what did I do? And then, just if you could walk us through, once you've signed up, what what does it entail to organize around? Okay, so when you sign up, Move On has lots of different things on their page about, you know, tips about de-escalation, how to do a press release, lots of, you know, signs. Those are all helpful. But for me, what really helped me is, like, I reached out to Joe Seaman. I sent him in a group email that I sent to off tomorrow. He didn't respond because he, he had all personal things he was engaged with. So then I sent him another email directly to him, thanking him and saying, you know, I'm really interested. And then he did respond back to me and he gave me his phone number. And then we started talking and what working with him helped. There was a lot of things to that I didn't think about or how to do it. So for example, reaching out to the press, you know, move on has a template about how to do press release, but I don't know the first thing about, you know, who to contact or what or whatever. So he was helpful in that. We had another member of our group, Amy. She actually, I gave her the template because I delegated certain tasks to certain people. So I gave her the template. And she's also, she wrote a letter that we're trying to put out through the Altamont Main Street Group. We want to send out a letter to some of the main um, 
Price Chopper and some of the main organizations in terms of moving some of the fake news because uh, like a lot of people were concerned, like, you know, something like, for example, what was it? National Enquirer. Like they ran a lot of the tabloids tabloids Mm -hmm. ran a lot of just fake, uh, you know, bad stories. And some of the people in the group felt like these things are right in people's face, right at the counter, and it could have a negative influence. So some, you know, Amy, one of the members of the group, she wrote a letter and with the objective is we're going to send it out to different local like Hannaford or whatever to say, Hey, is it possible that you could move that? So it's not directly, I mean, obviously it's your business. You're going to sell what you have to sell, but maybe not have that so close to the counter because we're seeing the negative effects of fake news and all of that on people. So that's one thing. So she wrote a letter, which we haven't sent that out yet, but since she wrote a letter, I had her do the press release and she also wrote a letter that we did end up giving to the representatives of the senator listing our concerns and our issues and what we want from them. So she did that. Joe reached out to Citizen Actions. He reached out to Jamaica Miles, who's a um, works for she's a longtime organizer. And so they put the word out. I created a Facebook page for the ones that you've seen, the Altamont Main mm-hmm. Street. I created that page. Um, I created the event on that page. And what the intention was, obviously, to not only talk about our agenda, but also I wanted to reach out to as many people as possible. So every time I do these types of events, I want to reach out to the people that attend it. So A, they know if I'm doing future events, they know about it. But B, I want to build a connection and a a, a sense of community for people who have the same fear and concerns and also just updates. So I put a lot of like any news that I see that's interesting. I post it on, on the page. Um, so creating the Facebook page, creating a Facebook event, um, going out there, having press advisories and, and press releases, um, reach, sending out emails, reaching out to the various people, creating letters. So it, it, it's, it's a little bit time consuming. It's a lot of different steps that you have to take to kind of get that going. Um, but I'm, I have, I think, good organizational skills in terms of like, you know, keeping focused on what I need to do and like who I need to email and who I need to follow up with, um, reaching out. So, and the things that I didn't know I'm learning and Joe was very instrumental in that. And we were actually thinking of planning something during the presidential week holiday because that's a February 20th to 24th is a congressional recess period. So some of them will be back in their districts. February 20th is president's day. So we're thinking of organizing. We're trying to see if we can organize something, on that scale as well, another event as well. So it sounds like you use both the traditional media, you know, the press releases and the electronic media. And what I saw there, I counted about 75 people. And there'd been so much coverage about the Women's March being mostly white. And I saw a lot of variety there. I saw Asian faces, faces of color, different ages. And I saw handmade signs, you know, not the kind that get handed out for a rally to look good on TV cameras, but, you know, somebody had taken their own marker and written what their message was. So how how did you feel about the group that turned out, and how do you think most of them were reached in order to, to be there? People were reached at various. Either they were reached via, the, some people came through Facebook, because I created a Facebook event page, and um, Joe and I think Citizen Action reposted my event. So a lot of people, like there were on the Facebook event page, about 20-something people said they were interested in coming, but over 100 people said they were interested. Then on MoveOn, 
on Monday night, because they were a little delayed with that, they were supposed to send that out earlier, they sent out recruitment emails. So all of the recruitment was done electronically. So that's where that changes from the traditional. So it's, it's, it, all of the recruitment for these types of things is done electronically. The group that came out was wonderful. And I felt very excited and proud because I said, this is my, what a luck, you know, my first event. And it was so much, I have to say, it was a different feel. Like the last one, people just dispersed and whatever. But that's because it was such little time for Joe to get it because the person who did it dropped it at the last. And I would not have been the person to do that. If Joe didn't help me, I would have done it anyway. I might not have what he did get also what I to add he brought in because he has contacts. So some of the representatives that you saw that were speaking. So Kevin Mann for, I believe, Chuck, Chuck Schumer and David Connors for Senator Christian Gillibrand. Like he reached out to them. I reached out. He gave me, let me know, tell me to reach out to Paul Tonko's people. So I believe um, Dan Peluso where he's a, he's a staffer. I think he's a scheduler. He came out for, um, Paul Tonko. I reached out and all of these things. I'm like, Oh, okay. Now I know to reach out to different people, but they came out. Had I done that completely alone, probably wouldn't have known to do that, but we would have had a protest anyway. We would have had that. I, that element I could have done. And it was very, I was very excited. I was like, well, it was positive people that were there. They came on time for the most part, which was, it was like, wow, they're actually here. <laughs> this is great. I said 11.45 and I saw people there at 11.45. I was like, oh, wow, people actually showed up. And it was, it, it just, it felt, and felt wonderful. And it was great to, number one, see the power of organizing, but also with the team. That makes a huge difference. But I felt like, okay, now I'm having a skill set that I didn't even think that I had and, you know, it put it to use. And what I think that helps me feel so much better about this whole situation. I mean, the situation with Trump and all these things that are coming about are pretty horrific. But actually doing something, actually being, even in my own small little way, I feel so much better because I feel like I'm taking action. I can't stop Trump and all of his craziness, but I'm doing things to try to impact. And we see the impact with the Democrats, because if you've noticed with the press, their tone has changed. And after the election, there was a lot of saying, okay, we're going to try to find a way to work with him. We're going to try to do stuff. But because of all this pressure from all these activists coming, and it's coming at them from all over. I mean, people were in New York City, you had thousands of people show up. People were going to Chuck Schumer's house. 200 people showed up at his house. All of a sudden, you see, like, they're not going to Pruitt's, Tom Pruitt's, they're boycotting meetings, they're saying that they're going to, they're putting up much stronger resistance. And that's all really directly because of all the activism, the phone calls that they're getting, the letters, because the one thread that's unanimous, whomever I'm talking from, is that people, the party, they want strong resistance. This is not normal. I mean, that was one of the things that was being chanted at the rally. Like, this is not normal. You know, like, it. you know, this is quite horrible. You know, and to not normalize this because people are trying to make it seem like this is business as usual. This is not. Trump is not a regular. This is not okay. We just have to deal with another Republican or conservative. No. I mean, this man threatens the whole fabric of our, our of our democracy from all fronts. This is a multi-frontal attack. And we want our representatives to understand that. 
Like this is this is not normal. Do not normalize this. It's not a question of trying to be the nice guy. You need to 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 fight because if you don't, it's it's going to be a, a very downward spiral. I mean, you now have somebody like Steve Bannon on the National Security. What is this man doing on the National Security Council? These are all. Trump is not divesting from businesses. He's pretty much just saying, I don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And what are you going to do about it? And all of these things are very dangerous. And but given the reality of a Republican Congress, a Republican presidency, and probably pretty soon a Supreme Court that is um, has the majority for a conservative viewpoint, what in reality do you think protests in the long run will accomplish? Well. Obviously, you have a valid point. I mean, like, let's take about his cabinet picks. Most of them are probably going to get in anyway. I mean, DeVos, that's a tricky one. But if, you know, if no other Republican turns, then probably um, Pence is going to come and he's going to throw the vote and she'll get it. The whole agenda is to try to do as much as possible to slow the process down, to impede it, to make it more difficult. It's not a question of they're going to get, of course, they're going to push for their agenda. But like, for, take, for example, the Affordable Care Act. You know, Republicans for the long time are coming, we're going to come in, we're going to, we're going to kill it, that's it. But now, because, it's, and this is coming from some of the Republican constituents, that they're getting all these questions like, what are you going to do? Okay, you're going to get rid of it. Well, what are you going to replace it? What's the replacement? All of a sudden, they're kind of in a tizzy. So their their language is changing because there's a sense of, they realize that people are going to hold them accountable. And the main agenda, especially, is for 2018. Because if we can slow things down, slow the process of, in 2018, if we could start changing some of the seats out. This is the, the whole... Mid, so you have hope for the midterm. With elections. the hope for the midterm. So that's why the buildup of the mm-hmm. activism is also necessary. This is a long-term gain. The long-term game, excuse me, that we have in mind to continue with this pressure. Because it, and, and going back to the Tea Party model... You saw the effect of, uh, effect of that. So 2008, Obama won the presidency, came in in 2009. When the midterms came in in 2010, the Republicans cleaned house. Why? Because the Tea Party had been putting steady pressure on their representatives to uh, obstruct everything that he did, and we're going to hold you accountable, and if you don't do what we're going to do, we're going to get rid of you. And you saw that that bore fruit in 2010. And so that's what we're kind of using. That's where the indivisible guy, we're using that as a model. So we're putting pressure where it's like, we want you to, we, we understand that there's not going to be a total victory, but we want you to resist. We want you to, we want you to do that. If you don't resist, if you cooperate, if you're not going to try your very best to at least slow the process down, then we're going to hold you accountable for that. And come midterm elections is what we're hoping for. If we have such a, a change in the seats, particularly in the House, that could begin to restore some balance in within the, the political landscape. Well, I'm wondering if for you personally, with all these issues, because there are a slew of them, if there's one that matters the most to you um, when you're organizing a protest or out there, is there one that for you personally is the most important? There are so many different, but I will say, I mean, the two, I mean, there are three different things, obviously, that impact me that I feel on a personal level. Obviously, the the civil rights, I mean, with Jeff Sessions as attorney general, that's a very dangerous individual. I mean, if you have somebody that was even in the Reagan era considered too racist to serve on a federal position, I don't know why he would be considered now. 
um, as a woman um, in terms of the attacks on Planned Parenthood. It's not even something, a resource that I use, but that's not important. I feel that this is attack on women in general, women's bodies, women's uh, you know right to choose, all of those things that I feel very strong because I do identify as a feminist. A lot of young people think that's a dirty word. There's nothing dirty about that to me. Um, so I do, <laughs> I do identify with that. And the last thing is on the environmental issue. This is the, this is, this is, we're talking about our future. You know, I, I have to say when Trump won, I mean, I went through all, I guess the stages of grief, like shock, anger, rage, <laughs> all kinds of things. But the thing that I felt most was that I felt like part of my future was stolen in a way for me. Like I felt like these people were threatening everything that I had come to believe or thought this country was the direction that we were going and my very future. I mean, these, this is, I, and with this environmental situation, this is, this is not a joke. I mean, we were talking about the weather earlier. Like, I mean, it's snowing, but I mean, this winter is nowhere near as the winters. I mean, if you think in each particular winter, it's getting slightly, I mean, I, on a personal front, like, yeah, it's great. Less snow for me to clean, right? Every time I have to clean snow, I'm not a happy person <laughs> looking at California dreaming. But um, when I see that, but at the same time, if you just think about this from a broader environmental scale, that's a, it's, it's a very frightening thing. And to see the mechanisms that are at play, I mean, these people really just don't care. It's all about profit. We could destroy the planet, you know, planet be damned. That's a very frightening thing. And this impacts my future and the future of all humanity. So between the civil rights issues, um, the women's rights issues, and the environmental issues, I would say those three things to me personally are really critical issues for me. Good. Well, one of the things, when I invited you here, I thought we were going to be all about local, but we chatted a little during the break, and it turns out you have a really interesting global view, both because of your tutoring job, which I hope you'll talk a little about, and because of the research on your novel. And if you could just kind of share some of that, I think it would be interesting, because one of the things that for me stands out most about the Trump administration is this move towards isolationism, this move towards America first and sort of screw the rest of the world. So if you could just talk a little about that. Um, yeah, so I am currently working on a novel series and it's it's going to be a multi-pronged series. It's about a a young girl, she comes from a very educated background, in a way, sort of the New York elite. She's of a Brazilian descent. Her mother is a professor at Columbia University. Her father was a very prominent activist, a writer. And she goes, she gets a full scholarship to Stanford University. She's an artist, and she moves there with her best friend. And she finds herself caught up in this um, global, like, international sex ring that's kind of comprised of these, what I call the international elite or the international oligarchy of the world, which is comprised of these very wealthy, very powerful, influential people who are global. They almost call them like, I think there's a term for like global crats that they're not local. Like you see like, and one of the focus that I was looking at with one of the characters was I was looking for quite some time about the the Russian oligarchic class, which was something that was of fascination to me, which with this whole election with Russia, that was like, oh, whoa, because I've been doing this research for, I would say, into Putin into Russia 
for about the last three to four years. So when I saw Russia coming into, I guess, our election, it was it was very a startling thing. But what I've learned when I was looking into this, so I looked a lot about, let's say, London, which is a lot of people don't realize that, but London's a very an international capital for a lot of this international elite. So Russians, Middle Eastern royalty, they buy up property, they buy up wealth. Um, art is another major thing. A lot of people probably don't realize that, but a lot of this sort of small percentage of them, they're very major art patrons. It's a good investment. I mean, they're dropping millions. Roman Abramovich, who is, actually, he's an interesting figure. He's a long-term associate of Putin. He's one of the people that was behind um, when Putin came into power in 1998. He was one of the figures that played a key role in him, him and Boris Berezovsky, who's now dead, in actually promoting Putin when he came into power, putting him and they supported him, and he still maintains a relationship with him. His wife, Dasha Zukova, who's a daughter of another Russian oligarch, she grew up in the States. She came here when she was 10. She's actually an American citizen. She is friendly with um, the, I would believe, Ivanka Trump. She's also friendly with uh, Wendy Murdoch. It was actually a picture of them that came, I believe, in September. You remember the tennis matches that were that took place, um, the tennis open in Queens. They had these international mm-hmm. tennis match. There's a picture of Dasha Sukova, Wendy Murdoch, Ivanka Trump, um, I believe one of, who is... Princess Eugenia, I believe, like Princess Andrew, one of Princess Andrew's daughters, was all in one box in watching this tennis match together. And this is what a lot of people don't realize. While a lot of like somebody like Trump is preaching um, isolationism or whatever, this international oligarchy, they have bigger plans and agenda. And it's not, and they are kind of like you see it with their relationships with each other, the friendships. Wendy Murdoch is the ex-wife of Rupert Murdoch, who was the, who's the owner of Fox News, and is also rumored at one point. This is more allegation that she had some sort of relationship with uh, Putin, but she has a long-term friendship with Ivanka Trump. She's a woman. She actually introduced them, her and Jared Kushner, and she was part. She was the one who introduced them. She's also friends with Roman Abramovich's wife, Dasha Zukova. So what a lot of people don't understand is that while Trump is preaching this sort of America first and this isolation, and and that's very resonant to people. You can see this also with the Brexit situation, right? A lot of people feel very frustrated. They feel very left behind and stuff. This is not the agenda of these people. These people's agenda is pretty much to find whatever mechanisms they can to make money and hide money, and that's about it. The Russians, oligarchs, they buy properties in New York. They buy property in in London. They have no intention of, they're not living there. They don't care. This is ways for them to move money out of the country, to store it. They buy it in art, and they create situations where they preach because you see this in Russia as well. Oh, Russia first, Russia this, and you know the same isolation rhetoric. But in practice, that's not what's happening. What's in practice, these people are international. Their money is being moved in all over in offshore accounts, and they're doing things to create what I call this destabilization effect in in the local areas because it's beneficial to them to do that. The more that you're focused and not paying attention to what they're doing, the better it is for them. And that's what and uh, people don't realize that. Like Wendy Murdoch said. Something really interesting, like before Trump was elected and they were talking about how she felt because she's a Chinese woman. And she said, well, you know, 
because talking about Trump's anti-China policies or at least negative Chinese. And she said, well, you know, his daughter is not like that. And I mean, she's teaching her kids Chinese. And that really struck to me. And I said, huh, isn't that interesting? Yes, isn't that interesting? And this is a perfect segue into your teaching in China. Tell uh, us a uh, yes. about that. Okay, so um, I am currently right now working, I'm doing, and this calls into the technology aspect or whatever, I'm doing this um, tutoring position where I'm actually going to be teaching English to children in China, in Beijing, but it's all being done online. I'm using Skype to do it. I actually did an interview with somebody who was in um, Beijing and we interviewed via Skype. So it kind of talks about the international network. And I'll be working with a lot of young students doing basic curriculum sort of things and teaching them online. And I'm doing orientation for that in about a week or so to work on that. So that's, I supplement that with also my creative and my freelance type of work and my writing. So that's something that I can do. And it's something that excites me very much. But yeah, we live in a global world, a society. I mean, the world of complete isolationism is I don't see that happening. I know that's very appealing to people because there are real, I mean, some of the policies that have been in place have had real negative impacts on people. And I can completely understand that. But what a lot of people don't get is that the people that are preaching the sort of America first, they're not interested in doing, like, for example, why why are all these factories being moved to China? Because it's cheaper for the manufacturers. It's just pure and simple. You think they're going to build it over here to um, increase cost on their end? No, of course not. And Trump's trade war is going to be having a negative impact because it's going to bring up the cost. As a matter of fact, I read a Time paper just recently, which I posted on the Facebook page, where now you have billionaires like the Koch brothers organizing what they call a billionaire resistance from the right, because their concern that especially something like a trade war, that's hurt. Nobody wins in a trade war. They don't like that. That's very concerning for them. They also didn't actually like the Muslim ban. They thought that was a very bad image thing. And they don't like Trump's calling out people on Twitter and businessmen. They're actually talking about, which I think in some sense might even have maybe an even greater impact than what we're doing organizing on the street because they are pretty much telling the Republicans that they fund, um, stand with Trump at your peril. If you do not impose Trump on issues that we feel that you need to impose him on, you're going to be cut off from our funding. You're going to be cut off from our networks that are going to be that are that you need to get yourself reelected. And that includes Paul Ryan. He's not an exception to that, even though he's a Coke brother darling. So that just shows you the, the, the scale of what's going on. But again, again, going back to my point about trying to create jobs and for the local economy, that's, of course, that's a legitimate concern. And there could be jobs to be created, especially in terms of green energy. That's a huge potential market. That's a huge potential new industry that could create a lots of jobs. But that's not being discussed. We're talking about to keep drilling in an industry that again, has a negative catastrophic, catastrophic event, effect on our environment, and that in the long run, it's, there's no future in that. Well, meanwhile, green energy has tremendous potential, and that's not being invested in. And so the people that are going to benefit from all of this are the, the same elite that many people feel angry against that are that are rebelling i mean you see these russian oligarchs you see what do you they're not interested in you they don't care about the working person class people person they just care about how am i going to make money for me 
And I think the thing that Trump did successfully, I have to, it's almost like, almost like a Houdini trick, is somehow he managed to convince working class people that he, a billionaire, a son of, of wealth and privilege all his life from New York, a New York elite in, 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 in the truest sense of it, is somehow concerned about them, is somehow their role model. And I call that a Houdini trick because there's nothing in that at all that has any bearing of fruit whatsoever. You know, if you look at his business practices, he has a long history of failure and con and 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 just cheating people out of their money and destroying work people that come work for him. And I mean, I mean, he just paid off a twenty-two something million dollar lawsuit to people Trump University right before he just you know right after he took office. He just you know paid off a lawsuit. He reached a settlement. He reached a settlement. Yeah. for for that. So you know that's. But that's what people need to understand. And I know we touched upon something else, too, which I feel the thing that I really am annoyed in in all of this discussions is this whole talk about the coastal elites as opposed to the real people that are suffering in the heartland. And as anybody knows who's up here, there is nothing further from the truth. Suffering is all up and down the United States. I mean, you have an article in your paper that talks about the poverty rate has doubled to 40%. Um, I'm from the Schenectady region. I moved there, and that's a whole. That's another economy that's depressed. I mean, GE completely closed, and it, you know it hasn't rebounded since. You could go into Buffalo. You could go all up and down, and even in New York City, which I'm originally from. I mean, yes, if you're in Manhattan and you're in Soho and you're in the Upper East Side, or now parts of Brooklyn. I remember those areas of Brooklyn, you know, because I was born in Brooklyn when they were just struggling neighborhoods. Now, you know, with gentrification, the people have just been moved out, and now, you know. Um, all these neighborhoods are kind of the shiki shiki places, but it wasn't like that. And these people are being moved and pushed out and pushed aside. But even in New York City, you see that same struggle. I mean, if you didn't have a house before, if you didn't get into that, it's almost impossible to get into that market unless you have some type of money. And so what people need to understand and realize is that this is not about us against them. Like, yes, I'm not in a coal miner. I don't have anything experienced. But that doesn't mean that there's not a struggle here. You can, That's all up across the country. And across the world, obviously, you can see with Britain as well, there's struggling going on as well. This is not about these intellectual rich people that are trying to take things away from you. Trump is part of that class of international rich people that's trying to take something from you. This is about real people in real struggles across the races, across the nation. Well, I think that's a wonderful ending statement. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming here. You're very, very welcome.